Widespread flooding in Pakistan affecting tens of millions, scorching heat and drought across Europe and China, raging bushfires in the US, and of course, let's not forget the repeated flooding in Australia, the fires, the loss of billions of creatures to the flames, and the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. Global warming is running unchecked, and while there's widespread acceptance that it's real and it's driven by human activity, governments won't take the decisive steps necessary to decarbonise society. So how are we in general, and climate scientists in particular, to respond? One answer, published in the academic journal Climate and Development, is that it's time for radical change. Scientists should stop measuring the unfolding disaster and effectively declare a moratorium, a kind of strike. The three authors of that paper argue, and I quote, that the tragedy of climate change science is that compelling evidence is gathered, fresh warnings issued, new institutions established, and novel methodologies developed to redress the problems. Yet greenhouse gas emissions and other indicators of adverse climate change and global change more broadly rise year upon year. And if you want to read more from that paper, I'll put a link to it in the podcast description. So to discuss the issues today, I'm joined by one of the three authors, Professor Tim Smith. Tim is a human geographer and professor of sustainability at the University of the Sunshine Coast. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia. And if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Naram or Melbourne. So welcome, Tim. Um, thanks very much, David. And I also want to acknowledge that I'm on Gubby Gubby lands in Noosa. Thank you. Now, the cliche in the academic world is publish or perish, but now you're advocating that climate scientists declare a research and publishing moratorium. In particular, you're arguing for a halt to further IPCC assessments after the sixth one comes out this year. And just a reminder that IPCC stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Why have you and your colleagues drawn this conclusion? Um, thanks, David. And look, I just want to firstly make the point that, that we've drawn the conclusion very reluctantly. You know, essentially, we, we, we see the, the issues that we're facing. You know, the, these issues are catastrophic and we've known about them for decades. So we, we tried to take a critical view of, of the ways forward. So we explored three courses of action. So essentially, you know, we, we looked at doing um, science as usual gathering evidence as we do as scientists, showing the decline that's going on, showing the consequences. But essentially, this hasn't really led to any transformational changes. Um, so we, we, we sort of thought, well, what do we do? What are our other courses of action? We thought perhaps we could increase advocacy and activism or social science research. You know, but there were 7.6 million people before the pandemic involved in climate protests in 2019 alone. And this still has not led to transformational change. So the only option that we think is potentially plausible that we haven't tried yet is to actually call a halt on things like the IPCC process and to say, well, enough is enough, that we actually recognise that the science society contract has been broken 
and we need to reset. So essentially, we're, we're, we've, we've done the paper as a provocation, if you, if you like, to essentially say to the science community, what is it that we should be doing? Now, you argue in your paper that you see a moratorium as, and I quote, a new powerful possibility for scientific advocacy and a further means by which scientists can act in the public interest when all other avenues have failed. What are you hoping is going to happen from this provocation? Well, look, I first should say that, that there's been a, a lot of diverse reaction to the paper. And a lot of that reaction has come from within the science community. So I think some people are very sympathetic with the view, but, but others have actually been quite hostile to the idea that we might actually call for a halt on science. Now, now to be clear, we're not criticising the science. There's been amazing science that has been done. In fact, it's probably been the most successful scientific endeavour that the world has known in terms of raising our understanding of the issue. But what we're actually talking about is that we actually need to pause. We need to reflect on what our role is as scientists and how we can actually be part of the change process. And I think we'll come to some of this later in the discussion about what the role of science is in society. But I think we, we can't see scientists as being purely objective. You know, we, we need to actually look at actually being part of a change process, particularly when there is so much at stake. So I think this idea of what we're talking about with advocacy is, is really is multidimensional. It, it could be civil disobedience right through to even questioning the sorts of things that we look at, to the way that we do science, to actually saying, well, well maybe we need to re-examine what we're doing and the impact that we're having, because we're not having the impact that we need to have. And just to add to what I said in the introduction, What's the picture that you would paint right now of the situation that we're in? Oh, look, we're, we're, it's, it's incredibly dire. I mean, we first, uh, the first IPCC report came out in 1990. Yeah, so we've, we've known about these issues. There's been global consensus among the scientific community for decades. Since that time, the first IPCC report in 1990, global emissions have risen an extra 67%. This is while we've known what is going on and what we're doing. It's just a diabolical situation. And I should also mention that, that these things aren't just focused on climate change. There's a whole gamut of, of different impacts um, that are affecting our survival on the planet, from biodiversity loss. Climate change is just one other example of these things that we are continuing um, placing into decline. So I think it's, it's just incredibly important that we recognise the urgency of this problem. We're, we're crossing critical thresholds at the moment in terms of what we call planetary boundaries. And we're getting to the point of no return with, with many of these fundamental systems that support life on the planet. Your colleague, one of the three authors, Professor Bruce Glavovic, told the ABC that carrying on with IPCC reporting in its present form helps to hold up a facade, creating the illusion things are being done while polluting and extractive industries carry on, more or less with business as usual. And he continued, and I quote, our institutional architecture is organised around short-term profit that privileges the wealthy and the powerful at the expense of the global south 
and the majority of the world's population. Is that how you see it too? Oh, definitely. Look, I think, um, I mean, you would have to be incredibly naive not to understand the, 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 the macro issues affecting the world at the moment. I mean, I mean you, you could be very cynical and say, isn't that the point of representative democracy to protect the interests of the, the power elite? I mean, that's um, perhaps, a, the, you know, a, an accurate description of the political system that we've got at the moment. I mean, really, the, the idea that, that anyone can own capital is, 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 is a, quite a strange concept, and it's a very anthropocentric perspective of the world, you know, where we privilege people above other species. That's probably uh, another debate that, that we, we might need to engage in. But, but look, essentially, you're exactly right. No, nothing fundamentally has changed, you know, so we, we are still uh, supporting the industries that are polluting, there is still huge wealth inequity on the planet that's been driven by centuries of industrial revolution activities. And, and I think this is, this is manifest now in the sorts of problems that we're facing globally. So look, I think, I think the other thing to recognise as, as well as the IPCC process, we've also had the convention of the parties process, you know, where heads of government get together and discuss what we should do. Now, we had the, the 26th meeting of the Convention of the Parties, the COP meetings that was held in Glasgow last year. And we've got the upcoming COP meeting in, in Egypt coming up at the end of this year. And those 27 meetings, there's been very little transformational change. I really, I don't think there's been any transformational change. There's been some tokenistic changes. Um, but as we've seen, and as I mentioned, an increase in emissions in 60, of 67% in that time that the 27 meetings of the COPs have been going on. So, you know, I think there's obviously something fundamentally flawed with our institutional architecture, definitely. Yeah, it strikes me as really ironic that the next COP will be held in Egypt, which is essentially a Western-backed dictatorship, where presumably if you were a climate activist and came out on the streets to organise a protest, you'd be bundled away very, very quickly by the security police. Uh, so how can you fight for climate justice when you can't even stand on the streets and protest for your rights? Well, you make a good point about protests, and obviously the New South Wales parliamentary decisions around protests, I mean, it's just abhorrent, you know, that, that we're just losing these, these basic freedoms within society to express opinion. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation within Australia that we have had this erosion of rights over the last few years. I mean, really, it probably goes back to, to 9-11, um, where, you know, that there has been this, this increase in this mentality towards nation states away from global cooperation. And we've seen a, a gradual erosion, I think, of, of rights over that time as well. Yeah, and I should add that uh, as well as the New South Wales legislation against protests, the Victorian government, the Labour government in Victoria has recently passed legislation specifically targeting those protesting over deforestation and illegal logging. And it's, I should also probably mention in relation to that, there was an ABC expose that a lot of that um, illegal logging actually came from the state government enterprise as well, but um, that's an aside. Yep, it's a pretty poor system all round. Now, you and your colleagues in the paper point to the way that governments followed scientific advice over COVID-19, well, at least fairly recently, but are reluctant to do so over global warming. And 
I suppose I'd throw in a, another example where the governments did listen to scientists over something like banning CFCs, which were the chemicals which created the hole in the ozone layer. And I'd argue that was because the CFC industry was relatively marginal to world capitalism. There wasn't really a substantial loss to the system to rule one particular pollutant out of action. But fossil fuels are worth trillions, and there are trillions of dollars more in sunk costs, such as refineries, pipelines and tankers, that capital is loath to write off. So under those circumstances, how are we to understand government in action? What are we meant to do about this? Look, I think you're exactly right, and, and the CFC example is, is a very good one to, to draw on. You know, it was an easy technological solution to, to that problem. And, and you're exactly right that, that, that the implications of implementing that decision were, were quite minimal um, in terms of, of other, other industries. So you're exactly right. This is a pervasive problem that we're facing, what, what we call a wicked problem. You know, and, and I think that, that it, it, that's why I keep talking about transformational change. And that's what's really needed. And that's the most difficult change that, that, to enact. We can't address this through incremental change or even through technological solutions. It needs to be a transformational change. You told the ABC that, and I quote, do we need a seventh IPCC assessment cycle? Are we going to wait another seven years to again hear about how terrible things are? We just don't have time for that. We need radical transformational action now, as you've just said. In that context, how do you view Labor's 43% emissions reduction target? Well, it's, it's a lot better than what we had, but it's certainly not enough. You know, we need to go faster, harder and deeper. And I think, you know, we also need to look at this within a, a macro view as well, that, you know, we're still supporting the fossil fuel industry. In fact, our taxes are going towards supporting it. Um, so it's, it's all very well to say that we're going to be reducing our emissions while we're still supporting the coal industry, for instance, and exporting um, emissions overseas. So and we need to take a systemic approach to this. The 43% reduction target is not enough. It's not quick enough. It's not deep enough. But at least it's looking at, at some viable alternatives like solar. I mean, the, the worst thing that we could do is replace one existential crisis with another. And you'd have to be a potato to think that nuclear power could be part of solving this problem, for any, instance. Any particular potato in mind? <laughs> there, there are, unfortunately, there are many. <laughs> but, but I think that, 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 that we need to think about this. We, we, we need to think, and that's why I go back to, it's not just climate change. There are so many issues that we're facing with, including things like biodiversity loss, which we're not really talking about now at the moment, because the whole the rhetoric is around climate change. But there are so many other sustainability challenges that we're facing. And that's why it's so important to look at a holistic, integrated pathway forward to addressing these sustainability challenges in an integrated way. And I think that's what we need to think about. We can't just think about just emissions reductions, targets and so on. It's a whole change in the way that we think about sustainability and we think about consumption. We think about the things that drive 
the economy, for instance. And we really need to go back to understanding that it's not a trade-off between environment, society and economy. In fact, it's a hierarchical relationship. Without environment, we don't have society. Without society, we don't have economy. And so it's a radical rethink about how we structure our society. Our institutional processes are just things that we've made up. They're, they're not natural laws. They're just things that society has created. It's easy to create another set of institutional arrangements. The problem is that there are so many vested interests um, tied up in the ones that we've got. One apparent vested interest is that of fossil fuel workers who tend to be well unionised and well paid and are obviously very nervous about losing their jobs. There have been some really exciting attempts to build unity between climate activists and fossil fuel workers and their unions in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, in the Hunter Valley and elsewhere. Do you see climate scientists as having something important to contribute to that process? Because if we can get the unions actively involved in the, in the climate movement, it does shift the balance of power very much in our direction, doesn't it? Look, certainly, the, the, the more people pushing for change, um, I guess, potentially there's um, more likelihood of change. But, but we've seen that, that, that there are so many people protesting at the moment. There, there is so much push for advocacy, and yet we haven't seen the transformational change. Um, and so, you know, we, we wonder why that is. And that, that's really what led us to thinking about the paper and the role of, of scientists in this. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But look, I mean, fundamentally, we, we've got some, some real challenges that we need to think about. You know, what, what is more important? You know, I, I understand that livelihoods are critical and it's, there's a critical role in for, for government, if we have a government system that we have at the moment, to... To, to look at supporting transformational change. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if we don't have a planet, we don't have any jobs because no one's going to be able to survive. So we, we need to think at the, about these things, not only from our individual self-interest, but for the interests of our, our children and their children and other species and, and the planet generally. And I think, you know, it's, it, we, we, unfortunately, the media polarises this debate you know, into jobs, no jobs, you know. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult position to, to be arguing from that perspective. I think we need to think much more holistically about, about this. There, there are so many issues that, that need to be unpacked. I mentioned earlier, I think ownership of capital is probably the biggest challenge that we face. And I, I suppose that's why I probably don't see necessarily a socialist outcome as being necessarily the ultimate goal from my perspective because it's still another form of ownership of capital. It's just owned by the state rather than owned by an individual. And I think any ownership of capital is problematic and I think that's why perhaps um, you know, an anarchist perspective is probably more suited to dealing with some of these complex issues. Um, but that's another debate for another time, I think. Um, but, but really, I think, and we look at all of these things, even the way that we respond to some of these impacts, you know, it's uh, the, the key issue that's, that's impeding change is private property rights in the coastal zone when we're looking at coastal impacts. So I think it's about how we actually deal with some of this 
in his issues around ownership of capital that, that are going to be really critical to sort out. But I think in terms of workers and workers' futures that are in industries that are contributing to the climate change problem, um, certainly there needs to be support for transitioning into other sorts of industries and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, as I said, if you don't have a planet, there aren't going to be any jobs anyway. So, you know, it's, it's a fundamental, tough conversation that we need to have. And certainly um, scientists have a role to play in that, um, particularly looking at things from a systemic perspective and also a, a holistic, integrated perspective dealing with, as I said, all of the sustainability challenges that we're facing. I should just add, uh, not to prolong the debate, but just for those who are not familiar with solidarity, that our vision of socialism is not about um, a hierarchical state control, but about workers owning and directing democratically the industries and uh, that they that they work in. And I think that's a completely different way of understanding ownership of capital, mass mass democracy. But look, let's just note that. And so uh, let's let's. I just want to. I mean, look, I I, I agree to the intent. But even democracy as a model, like if you have 51% of people saying this is the way forward, it doesn't mean it's the right way forward. And I think that's, that, that's part of the issue with democracy and, and why the, the popularism that we've got at the moment is so influential in, 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 in creating this very polarised perspective on, on politics. Um, so, you know, while I agree that certainly there shouldn't be individuals that control significant elements of the capital system, I'm not convinced that democracy in itself is actually the ideal that we all tout. Um, and, and this is an issue, you know, I think that we have these very normalised views in society. And when I talk about anarchism before, immediately this, this, this discourse on anarchism has become one of violence and chaos. And that's, again, not what anarchy is about at all. It's about cooperation. And so, you know, I think that, that this discourse gets captured by people that don't want change. You know, it's easy to, and we've seen this all through history, there's been all sorts of movements that are, have been captured and it's been twisted into some sort of other reality because we have such a normative view of, of the world and this is portrayed through media and, and, and reinforced. So. You know, I, th I think that it's true. I mean, it's the same as socialism. All of these things have been sort of so captured in, in what they mean to particular people. And democracy, again, is one thing that we hold up as this beacon of something that, that could never be wrong. You know, it's, it's got to be the ideal. Well, it's not proving to be the ideal that we want it to be at the moment, is it? That's, again, we, I don't want to labour the point. It's probably a much longer discussion, but it certainly yeah, is. thanks for the tangent. No, no, fair, fair enough. And yeah, there are different ways of conceptualising democracy. I might just encourage listeners to go back and look at a, uh, listen to a recent podcast we did on Is Revolution Possible in the West? Because that deals with some of those issues. But I'm not going to take up more of Tim's time. I want to get back to um, the core issue at hand. So... What do we need to do to hold warming to under, say, 1.5 degrees, which is, as I understand it, a threshold uh, increase? Thanks, David. And I think it's, it's a multi-pronged approach, you know. So I, th I think, obviously, 
we, we, we need to reduce emissions as, as quickly as possible. But we also need to recognise that, that even that's not going to be enough, that, that we need to do other things and we are going to need to adapt to the impacts of climate change. There's lag effects built into the system. So even if we, we stopped emissions now, we would still need to be dealing with the impacts of climate change through adaptation, you know, into the future. And, and I think it's important to, to think about um, different types of adaptation that we need to, to prioritise and, and the sorts of flow-on effects from that. You know, essentially, you know, we can look at protecting, for instance, assets. We can look at modifying them or we can look at moving them. There are some things that, that we're going to have to deal with that are going to be life-threatening in the short term, like more extreme heat events that, that kill far more people and other sorts of climate hazards, for instance, um, how we deal with those sorts of things. But I think the important thing is that this isn't just a technological solution, and that's what's being pushed all the time. You know, How do we generate more power that's cleaner? And, you know, there's never really a discussion about how do we use less? How do we change our consumption patterns? And this is, again, tied up in this rhetoric that we need to continually have economic growth, which is a, an unsustainable model. You know, so because of this, this push towards economic growth, this mantra and economic growth, we don't address some of the things about reducing consumption, about changing our lifestyles. You know, there was a huge movement you know, not that long ago around permaculture and, and you know, other sorts of, of movements like, like that, that that seem to have disappeared a little bit from the rhetoric. And now we're talking about huge solar farms, you know, hydrogen energy. And those things are important, but they're, they're not the panacea to the problem. The, the problem, a lot of the problems to do with the way that we, we act and our models of consumption, for example. Now... You alluded to this earlier, but it's a question that's often discussed. And to what extent can science be purely objective? Uh, isn't science also shaped by agendas over funding, over whose interest it serves, and what conclusions are palatable? It's a complete myth that science is objective. Science, essentially, the whole endeavour of science is a value-laden process. And you're exactly right from the, the question that you choose to explore to the methods that you choose to the, the, the literature you use to interpret it, all of these things are value-laden processes. And, you know, it, for instance, I mean, I, it doesn't matter how much money you gave me, I wouldn't be looking at developing a next-generation nuclear warhead, for instance. You know, the, we as scientists, there is no doubt we are driven by values. Um, some scientists will say, that they're not, but really, if you if you if you look deep enough, you will see that all science is value laden. You know, and I, I think some scientists also say that they don't really understand this idea of the science society contract that we say is broken. They say, exactly right, we're given money to research this problem, we research this problem, and that's it. But that process is a value laden process. You know, the, the science society contract is really about us doing research that is actually going to benefit society and the environment. That's what we should be doing. So I think it's, it's, it's erroneous to say that science can be purely objective. Um, it's not. The, the scientific process is a value-laden process, and I think we, we really need to recognise that, particularly when we're doing research that has such far-reaching consequences around issues like survival of the planet. 
uh, we, we, we need to be explicit about, about that, I think. And look, finally, what's your message to any budding scientists who are listening? If the politicians aren't listening to the message, what kind of role does science play in the fight for a better world? I just want to go back to say that, that there has been amazing science that has been done on this issue. And we wouldn't be where we were today without that scientific endeavour and the dedication of thousands of scientists globally who have been working on this, this problem. So I, I'm not saying that, that we should stop doing all science altogether indefinitely, that I'm, what we're arguing for in the paper is a pause so we can actually reflect on what is the most effective use of our time. I mean, as I said, you know, because of the lag effects that we're going to be facing with these issues, there's going to be catastrophic impacts with a whole range of different communities and very vulnerable communities around the world. You know, so obviously we, we, we need to, we have an obligation to, to try to help those communities that are going to be affected. But I think, you know, it's, it's in terms of messages for, for new scientists, I think it's, it's important to recognise where the research fits within the broader uh, system. And there are roles for scientists, I think, in a whole range of different ways. I mean, you know, there is scientist rebellion. There, there are a huge range of, of movements that scientists can get involved in to try to enact change. And I think it's incredibly important for scientists to have voices um, that go beyond the lab in this post-truth world that we're in at the moment. We have a, a moral responsibility as scientists um, to be explicit uh, about those things. So, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a challenging world for researchers and scientists at the moment, um, but it's, it's also a critical role that, that we play into the future. So the paper is certainly not saying, let's just stop doing science, forget about it, it's not working. We're saying what we need is a critical pause. We need a discussion. The science community needs to have a critical discussion about what it is that we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And that's really the point of the paper. Okay, thank you so much for your time, Tim. I know you're really busy. Despite whatever differences we may have, we are absolutely united on the need for urgent and radical action. And thank you for speaking out and thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, thanks very much, David. And, you know, I really appreciate the time and everything that, that, that you're doing in this regard as well. You know, I think that, um, as you recognise, um, and there are, there are fundamental changes that need to take place. And the current trajectory that we're on has a whole lot of disastrous consequences for society and the environment. There definitely needs to be transformational change. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, sir.